Well, good morning. I'm looking forward to Easter. Are you? It's going to be a great day. You know what? I want to introduce you to, um, you know, the, my favorite camel in the world, the cleanest camel I've ever been around. He's a short little guy, but he's awesome, among other animals in the petting zoo. You know, a petting zoo and a fountain, and I'm a happy guy, so uh, we're going to have a petting zoo. Um, today is our last Sunday in a series that we've called Conversations because words have power. And we should be having conversations about the right things and understand that our words actually have power. Our words will set the tone of our homes. It will set the focus of our future. Uh, it's so very important. And so today we complete, we're actually gonna do chapter 11 in this 12 chapter book. I hope you'll get one of these books if you haven't already gotten one. And these are great talking points for you to have with your family, your friends, your neighbors. Uh, if you wanna grow in the right direction, here's a way to do that. Today, we're gonna be looking at the importance of the church, the church. Now, in my house, we have two family historians. They are Cindy and James, who are sitting on the front row today. James, for his 25th birthday, asked for a family tree poster. So in his room now is displayed the family tree, as far as we can had, had pictures for, and as far back as we can go. And he loves to learn about his relatives, his ancestors, and the people that, you know, he loves so much, his family. Cindy loves old pictures as well. She can be lost in the basement for an hour because she picked up an album and she started going through it. And before I know it, she's bringing it up and showing me and asking me who this person is, who that person is. Recently, she uh, was going through some uh, old family pictures of the lions. And we were looking at these pictures and one of these, it's, it said that this was James Lyons. She said, I didn't know you had anybody in the family by the name of James Lyons. And I said, I didn't either. And I looked at the picture and took some of the clues and realized that this was actually my great uncle Royce that we never called James. He was always just called Royce. And so James was so delighted that there was yet another James Lyons in the ancestry tree. Family pictures are important. It brings context to your life. It reveals who's important, what's important. I actually looked up what experts have to say about displaying family photos in your home. And here's some of the comments that they made with regard to the importance of having family photos displayed in your home. It says this, when children grow up seeing photos of themselves proudly displayed around their home, it says to them, I am valuable. I am a, I'm an important member of my family, I matter. Displayed photos help children understand that, that they have worth simply because they were born and are equal in value to every other person in the photo. It says, they go on and say, displaying family photos can create a feeling of belonging and a sense of security during life transitions. It can comfort children, helping reestablish trust in the family and therefore trust in themselves. During child development, children live a very egocentric, in a very egocentric world. 
Maybe some of us do too, right? One expert says that looking at photos of extended family and ancestors reminds children from an, a young age that they are, there are more people in the world. This world is bigger than just them. And, and that's a good thing. I can be connected to the people outside of my current household family, and I see that when I look at these pictures. There is something very comforting and anchoring when you see family photos. Now, I, I have in my mind a photograph, not a real photograph, of the picture I have of Jesus. And it's in Revelation chapter 1. And when I see the picture that's described of Jesus, I see Jesus as the king of glory, the powerful, sovereign ruler of heaven and earth. I love this picture of Jesus in the book of Revelation. You know, John the Apostle, as he writes the book of Revelation, writes a very dramatic book in which we get to the very end of time and tears and sorrow and death and pain are eternally wiped away and those of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ are welcomed into the uh, eternal uh, home of God himself. I mean, it, it is a dramatic conclusion of the vision of John. But it all begins with this snapshot of Jesus. And what's important for us today is that in the snapshot that we see of Jesus, not only do we get to see his majesty, but we get to see where he is. He is actually walking around seven golden candlesticks that are the seven churches. That's where Jesus is today. He's right in the middle of his churches. He's actually walking among us today. He's seeing how you're doing, how we as a church are doing right now. I mean, his eyes are here. His heart is here. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. He is moving to keep us right. He's seeking to use us and bless us. We are the light in a dark world. We are the salt in a decaying world. We are the hope of our city, of our state, of our nation and the world the the local church is the hope of the world and Jesus intends to use the church to accomplish his plan you know where he is not <clears throat> he's not on Wall Street because I'm not so sure he cares as much about the stock market as some people do He's also not walking up and down the streets of Washington, D.C. or the other capitals of great power in this world. He is among his people and he's among his church. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says to Peter when, G when Peter confesses, G you, are the, you are the son of God. That's what Jesus, that's what Peter says. And to that, he responds, on this rock, this confession, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Of all the things Jesus could say he was gonna build, he's not gonna build a university. He's not gonna build uh, a hospital. I mean, he, he did all of those too, but they all came out of building the central focus of his mission, and that is his church. The church is his strategy. Now, 
The word that is used for church really in Greek is ekklesia, which means an assembly of God's people. It somehow got transitioned because the writers adopted the German word for church, which is kirke, and it became church. And so that, that's kind of like, and now we think of church as a place to go. Now, it is a place to go, but it's way more than just a place to go. It's a people to belong to. It is the place where God is primarily at work in the world today. So let's take a look at the picture of Jesus, because this needs to be hung on the wall. Revelation 1, verses 9 to 20. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now, the church is both universal, it means all of the work of God, but it is always local. So these are actual cities in which churches were. And in this particular vision of Jesus, he's walking among the candlesticks, seven of them that represent these seven churches. And he says, I've got something to say to you guys. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded uh, about the chest with a gold band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went seven, uh, went, went sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the shining, the sun shining in its strength. And then I saw when when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, "Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive." forevermore that's Jesus Jesus died he rose again and he's alive forevermore amen and I have the keys of Hades and death write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches now some commentators say that the angels that he's holding in his hands could be pastors now, other commentators say, we don't think that's true, but I am a pastor, so I'm going with the first group. Because I can't possibly do this job unless Jesus holds on to me. And when I think about the fact that you and I sit here today as an assembled group of Christ followers and think that Jesus is here too, and that he is going to somehow, in the ordinariness of our assembly, accomplish the mission to reach the world. I, I just love that. 
So I want to just, I just want to take a look at what does Jesus look like, because this is the picture on the wall. First of all, he's wearing a robe. You know who else wears a robe still today? The judge. And when the judge walks into the room, this, the instruction is all rise, because the judge has just stepped into the room. Jesus is the judge. When you address the judge, you don't just say, hey, dude, hey, sir. No, it is your honor. This is who he is. He has white hair, and that signifies the wisdom. He's called the ancient of days. I mean, James says that God is the source of all wisdom. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives it all gives it to all liberally. Isn't that amazing? And without reproach, and it will be given to him. So you have access to the wisdom of God in prayer as you ask and seek God and decide to follow him and put yourself under his authority and let him be the Lord of your life. He is the Alpha and Omega. I mean, he's written the entire book. He's written your last chapter already. He knows what you're doing right now. Man, this is the kind of God I want. I don't want a God who is confused and weak. He knows everything. His eyes are like fire. You know what that signifies? It, it signifies reliable correction. You know, in my life, there are people that have eyes of fire. The first person in my life that had eyes of fire was my mother. My mother didn't speak a word. She just gave a look. And now somebody who has eyes of flowers, eyes of flowers, someone that I love so very much and treasure beyond all other relationships, it's my wife. And my wife doesn't even have to speak a word, but I look in her eyes and <laughs> this is, she's like, Seriously. I, I mean, I have a whole paragraph that comes up. This is what I imagine she's saying. Do you have to always be that weird? This, this is, I do hear that from time to time. She never articulates those words. When you drive and you're just like bebopping along and everything is great and you look into your rearview mirror and all of a sudden there's a policeman behind you, all of a sudden you stiffen up. Do you? Am I the only one? I take a look at my speed. How fast am I going, by the way? Eyes of fire. Sort of like this, the influence of Jesus. It, he, you can't come into his presence without feeling his correction. And he corrects you to keep you good and straight and healthy and right. His feet of bronze speaks of a sure foundation peace and security. Daniel, in the book of Daniel, talks about a statue that has feet of clay. And when the wind blew, it blew the statue down because feet of clay are unstable. But you know what? <clears throat> this Jesus has feet of bronze. He is stable and secure. If you want to build your life in a way that's going to be stable and secure, whether it's your money, your career, your relationships, your success, you should just Look to Jesus and let him guide you. Matthew 6, it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. 
He has a voice like a rushing, rushing waters. I mean, he, his authority is unchallenged. His face shines like the sun, radiant and righteous. And, and then it ends with, by the way, I have the keys. What keys? I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. There's only one person who can get you past death. So the most important thing I want you to see, though, in this picture for, for today's topic is this. He is pictured with his church. Because the church is that important to him. Now, I've been a church kid my whole life. My dad was a pastor when I was born. I've been to so much church, I'm telling you. If hours spent in church services got you points, I'd have lots of points. And honestly, sometimes I took for granted the church and what it was all about. But then when I read this, I'm reminded that, wait a second here, the ordinary church is the strategy of Jesus? Second, Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus proclaims his love for the church. Ephesians 5, 25, it's really talking about marriage, but the... The, the metaphor that is most helpful to a husband is, is this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle in it, any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. Now, what is his attitude toward us today? He loves us. He serves us. You know, there's a lot of people that would say, I, 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 don't, I don't know how to be a good father or a good husband because I didn't have good role models. Did, did you know that actually nobody has a good enough role model? I mean, we gotta be the best role model we can be. But the way to learn to love your wife, husbands, is by looking at Jesus and the way he loves his church. Make no mistake, he loves you today. He cares about what we're doing here. I hear people say, well, you know, I, I love Jesus, I just don't like the church. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever said that? Don't, don't admit. And Jesus says, you know what? I, I love the church. I love your individual stories, but I really love it when they all come together in the same place. And I'm never going to give up on you. You are all a work in progress. 
the truth about a church is this, that um, there is not a perfect church in the world. You come to church, come, I'm going to tell you what could happen. You could get your feelings hurt by other church members. And some people say, oh, I'm so shocked I can't believe people are not nice in church. Well, I can. Jesus can. Jesus says, actually, I'm on a mission to take them from where they are to where I want them to be. And in the process, they're going to kind of bump up against each other. And what you think is impossible, I know is possible over time as you all worship together and get to know each other you're going to become different. You know, m- most of the things that we need to learn are the fruit of, fruit of the Spirit, love. You, you can't love until you are with people you have to try to love. Did you know that? If God's going to develop that part of who he wants you to be, he's got to put you with other people. I mean, the person beside you, they may be so annoying. And you got to love them? Love, joy, peace, patience, patience. Do you know how do you, you learn patience? By going to church with people that are not perfect yet and annoy you. And you have patience for them. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, like I'm, I'm not going to give up. Man, you ticked me off today, but I'm still here. Gentleness, I'd like to give you a piece of my mind. But I won't. See, the strategy of Jesus is to put us all together in a church and through this whole thing, the mystery of God's transformation happens. And he says, I want you to never forget this one thing. I love the church. I love you. I know you're a work in progress. But I'm never going to give up on you. And he, he wants to present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Here's the deal. We come to Jesus with all of our problems and sins and failures and and we just say, Jesus, I, I don't know what to do, but I surrender to you. I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you love me so much you went to a cross to pay for my sin. I don't want to die and go to hell. I don't want to die and be separated from you. I want to I want to live with you forever. And and I can't do it. I just need you to rescue me. He says, done. I got you. And now I will begin 
and continue the transforming work that must be accomplished. I'm going to put you together with other people who aren't perfect yet either, even though they've accepted Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you an ability to exercise love when it's hard, patience when people are annoying, and you know it. Because all of those things cannot be developed all by yourself sitting at home. They are only developed in the context of relationships. And it's hard. You know, when James was a very little baby, uh, the doctor said that, you know, we, we needed to call in some therapists. So speech therapists, physical therapists, occupational therapists. And I was a very ignorant man. And I said to Cindy when they were calling for a speech therapist, he's like 30 days old. So what we're concerned that this 30-day-old baby isn't talking. Okay, I didn't know. It, if you don't know that speech therapists are incredible, they do all kinds of things that help in the development. And I remember going to the physical therapist one time. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it's amazing. When you need a therapist to help children push past the benchmarks of development so they can keep developing because they're, they're like one has to follow the other and has to follow the, okay. So here we're taking James as a very little baby to a physical therapist. She puts him on, on the mat in front of her and she like watches him and pushes him a little bit around and, and, she, and, and she says, oh, yeah, I know what needs to happen. This baby hasn't crawled, uh, turned over yet. No, he hasn't turned over. Well, you know, he needs to turn over because if you don't turn over, you can't ever crawl. If you don't ever crawl, you can't ever go to the next step and, and learn how to walk. And so, I mean, he, we're going to have to make him turn over. Yeah, but he, he doesn't turn over. Well, I'm, I, that's, I need to tell you, parents, I'm going to have to make him mad. I'm going to twist his leg, and he's not going to like it, and he's going to cry, and he's going to be mad. I need you to be prepared. But it is only through me making him mad and forcing him to do what he doesn't naturally do that he's going to actually get past this and reach the next benchmark. And so we sat there and we watched her, and sure enough, James got mad. She was twisting that poor boy's leg and pushing his shoulder and who knows what. I'm not a therapist. She made him mad two or three and four times, and then all of a sudden, he turned over, and he noticed, I just turned over. Sometimes progress only comes with a little pain. Too many people have abandoned the church because it wasn't perfect And miss the point that the strategy of transformation is to bring people together into the assembly and let God work it out in us. Jesus says, I love the church and I gave my life for it. If Jesus loves the church, so should you. Lastly, remember, the promise was that he would save us and transform us. 
One of my favorite writers is a man by the name of John Ortberg who tells the story of his sister Barbie who had a baby doll named Pandy. Now, my brother and I had a younger sister. We still have a younger sister. And, you know, Sherry had her baby dolls. And they were, they were like stained and nasty and ragged looking. And so it's kind of the same thing in his story. But his, his, his sister, Barbie, had a baby doll named Pandy. And um, Barbie, she played with this doll all the time, ate with her doll, uh, he slept with her doll, took a bath with her doll. And so over time... Pandy got to be looking pretty rugged. An arm was almost detached. The hair is all matted. I mean, but, but this ugly ragdoll was a part of Barbie's life. Even when the family went on vacation one time and they left the Pandy in the hotel room and they drove a couple hours and then only then realized that, oh, we, we left Pandy. What did the family do? They drove two hours back, went to the dumpster, found the, the, this rag doll, pulled it out. Why? Because here's the deal. If you loved Barbie, you had to love Pandy because they went together. And I think Jesus would say to us today, hey, you love me? You need to love my church. Oh, but Jesus, your church is so imperfect. I know. Look, at the, the arms are broken off. The stuffing is all out. Um, you know what Jesus would say? But I love them. And I'm never going to stop putting them back together. You should love my church too. He goes on to say that eventually his sister got married. She, she married a guy that became his brother-in-law who wasn't, was even less attractive than the brag doll. Only a, only a brother-in-law can say that. And then one day, they took Pandy to a doll, a doll reconstruction store. Who knew? And they reconstructed this little baby doll, sewed the arms back on, put the stuffing back in, made the face look clean and beautiful, fixed the hair, and it was perfect again. And she gave it to her daughter. Do you know what God's doing in us? He's putting the rag dolls back together. You say, but I'm, I'm such a mess, God. I don't even think you care about me. He says, oh, yeah, I do. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, and perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son... 
much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life and he will continue to work in us. You know, here's the story that the world will remember. God sent his son. His name was Jesus. He was on a mission. He was on a mission to save us. No matter how ugly or broken we are, he says, what I've come to do. And in order to do that, he had to go to a cross. And the God who created life endured the pain, the suffering, and the agony of the cross and even died himself. But three days later, he rose again. And he says, and now, because I have defeated sin, I can save you and forgive you if you'll come. Come to me and ask me. 